good. But when the daily grind does not let up. And some people in these early congregations were abandoning Christ. It just seems so soon, so quick. I don't know what it was. Was it persecution from the outside? Being teased by their family? Maybe just the boredom from the inside? Maybe strange ideas and heresies coming in? But whatever reason, some people were saying goodbye to their commitment to Jesus Christ. It's always been disheartening in our work in Africa when you build a church or the churches that, a couple of churches that we've planted, and to see some people starting out strong, but after, after a while, they lose interest in the things of God. And so what does the author do? What does the author of Hebrews do? How does he stop the bleeding? Well, he could lock the doors and bar the windows and nobody's leaving the church. What does he do? He does something infinitely more effective. He preaches a sermon. And then he picks up his pencil and he writes it down. And that's what the book of Hebrews is. The book of Hebrews, yes, it's a letter, but it reads differently than Romans or Corinthians or 1st or 2nd Peter. It's clearly a sermon with an outline and points to it. He picks up his pen and he has one message to write. Thirteen chapters, one message, summarized in two words. Hang on. Hang on. Friends, don't think for a moment that the book of Hebrews, that the message of Hebrews was just written to people way back then in another language, in another culture, in another time, by who knows who, in A.D. whatever. This is God's voice to us today. Do not think for one moment that you or I are not beyond the temptation of abandoning our faith. This is why even the book of Hebrews says we must press on. The author even includes him. It's written to us. The whole book is written to prove that we must face this temptation as well. The book is written as well to keep you safe. Not to scare you from abandoning Christ, but to keep you safe in Jesus. And I hope that we see that here in our few moments, moments together this morning. Do you fear falling away from Christ? Have you come here to church this morning thinking, unless God does something for me, I'm out of here. Are you being tempted? Was your last prayer time your last prayer time? Five years from now, will you have any semblance of spiritual warmth for Christ? You see, what's so important here to keep us following Christ. And of course, the Holy Spirit is in us, persevering in us as we walk with Him. But the argument that the writer of the Hebrews makes is so important because instead of whining or complaining or just threatening, moaning or manipulating us to stay with Christ, what does He do? He simply presents how beautiful Jesus is. Look at how beautiful Jesus is. How can you ever abandon Him? And so in chapter 1, he presents Jesus as better than the angels. He's better than the angels because he is God over them, chapter 1, and because he is man under them, chapter 2. He is better than Moses. He's better than Joshua. He is better than all the Old Testament priests and sacrifices and covenants and all the other ordinances that you may be tempted to follow. Now, when I read the book of Hebrews, I think, you know, I'm not a Jew, my great-grandparents are Swedish. We have no uh, connection with the old Jewish religion. I've never been tempted to leave anything and to go back to the Hebrew religion. 
But you know, the message of Hebrews is appropriate to all of us. Because anything that we put our confidence in, Jesus is better than that. Christ is superior to anything that we put our confidence in for our ultimate joy, for our ultimate happiness, for our ultimate significance, for our ultimate safety and satisfaction and hope. He is better than anything. So if all those things are taken away, we still have Jesus Christ. So we have a couple of points that we'd like to rush through this morning as we go through those. And these are in your bulletin. Point one, the unshakable kingdom. Let's just jump down before we kind of work through these verses. Jump down to verse 28 of chapter 12 where we talk about the unshakable kingdom of God. <clears throat> verse 28 really is the highlight, really is this, uh, the central point of this uh, text this morning. Verse 28 that says, Therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Here he talks about our great unshakable kingdom. Friends, there are so many things that can shake us. Since I was with you last, I think it was last October, look at what has shaken our nation. We've been through an impeachment trial. We've been through a pandemic, economy, all sorts of problems. Even the White Sox didn't make it through, and that is really causes us to be shaken. You know, things shake us. Our bodies shake us. Our healths shake us. Maybe in a relationship that you are in, and your whole life seems to be shaking. What a great and encouraging hope that we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Look at these th truths. Number one, God has a kingdom. What is God's kingdom? God's kingdom is his rule in heaven, in his own spiritual realm, that is absolutely perfect. Where he rules, where he reigns, where his will is done in heaven. Our prayer is that what's done in heaven would happen on earth as well. Your kingdom come, your will which is done in heaven would be done in earth. It's his perfect rule. We're going to see it now if we get a glimpse into, the, into, into heaven. We definitely will see it in the future. But even now, God gives us glimpses of his kingdom. There is no perfect kingdom on earth at all. But through, uh, from time to time, God has allowed us to see glimpses of his eternal kingdom breaking into earth. The resurrection of Jesus, for example, was a breaking in of God's heavenly kingdom under earth. The miracles that Jesus did are inbreakings of the kingdom of God um, on earth. He also allows us to have small foretastes of his kingdom. Like the church, where we hear God's word, where we see Christ's joy in each other's faces. The church is not the kingdom, but there's overlap, and it is a small inbreaking. Is it a small foretaste of God's kingdom? A godly home is also a small foretaste of God's kingdom, where there is love, where there is order, where there is teaching, where there is discipline, where there is grace, where there is forgiveness. But none of these are perfect overlaps with God's kingdom. No place on earth can be completely identified with God's kingdom. But God has a kingdom. But notice also here in verse 28 that God is not possessive of his kingdom. He says here in verse 28, Therefore let us be grateful, for we are receiving a kingdom. God is not selfish with this kingdom. Just like a child is selfish with their toys. My toy, ripping it out of his little brother's or sister's hand. 
We are receiving God's kingdom. It is for us. God is sharing it with us. Look also in verse 28, where he says, Therefore, let us be grateful, for we are receiving a kingdom. That's a guarantee. That's a promise. That is something that is coming now. Little by little, as we grow in Christ, we are benefiting in the benefits of his eternal kingdom. We are receiving it. But look at what this kingdom is called. It is his kingdom that cannot be shaken. Our lives shake us. Our nations shake us. Pandemics shake us. Good relationships gone sour shake us. But there are some things that can never be shaken, and that is the kingdom of God. That is our salvation, which can never be shaken. Well, this brings us now into point two, in which the writer then contrasts two homes. So we have point two, our old home, and point three, our new home. Let's spend a few minutes looking at and going back up to verse 18, where he talks about our old home, or rather two mountains. We now go to the desert floor of Sinai in the Arabian Peninsula, or on the Sinai Peninsula. And the Jews have just left Egypt, and they've traveled to the Sinai Peninsula. They've just left captivity from Egypt, Egyptian slavery. They're on their way to the Promised Land, and they have a pit stop in, at Mount Sinai. And God says, before you go up into your promised land, before you go up into the land of milk and honey and enjoy your own vines and fig trees and all these wonderful things, I want to meet with you. I need to order your life. I need to give you commands. I need to make a covenant with you. I need to give you the Ten Commandments and remind you that you are my people. You're not just going up there to drink milk and eat honey. You're going up there to be my people in my land because this is my people. And so God meets with them. And it's not a happy meeting in some ways. It's a terrifying meeting to them. We see this in verse 18 where it says, You have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and a darkness and gloom and a tempest. What is he talking about? When God met with Moses and uh, his people on Mount Sinai, he met with them on the mountain. God came down on top of the mountain. And that wasn't a nice little meadow with grass and rainbows and all these things. It was a terrifying experience. God thundered on that mountain. It wasn't Satan or the devil or, the nature, or nature doing all these things. It was God himself in all of his burning holiness coming down on that mountain and meeting with them. And then that mountain starts doing something really strange. Something that could not be explained as an act of nature. The mountain started to make music, but it wasn't nice, melodious, pleasant, joyful music. It was terrifying. It was the sound of a trumpet. Not the beautiful sound of a trumpet that you may have here, like in this church, making a melodious, harmonizing, horned instruments. But here it's called a trumpet blast in verse 19. War was taking place. Why did they blast trumpets back in those days? It was a call to war. And it was not a war against the Amalekites or a war against the Egyptians or the Midianites. Rather, the forces of God's holiness were now coming down onto that mountain, marshaled to visit this helpless people of God. We were confronting the living God. And these people were terrified. Even Moses, who was up on the mountain, the closest one of God, said, I'm shaking with fear. What was God telling them? 
God was telling them that I am holy and you are not. That if you are going up into my land, my promised land, you need to be holy. Friends, this is not the bad side of God. This is not the dark side of God. When God then took a fence and fenced the mountain or told them to make a fence and nobody is allowed to come up to this mountain, not even one of your animals or it will be killed. Why? Because God is mean? No, because God is holy and you are not. There was a separation. The whole Mount Sinai experience was stay away. I am holy, you are not. Stay away. Only Moses could come up. F.F. Bruce says this mountain was charged with the holiness of God. And so in the Old Testament, God put curtains up. You had to come through them through offerings. Your sin separated you from God. But the writer of Hebrews says that's not us today. It's not that you have come to a God and you can't touch him and he's so far away and he's still on fire. He says rather, and this is our point three, our new home in verse 22, where he says, but you have come to Mount Zion. Now he goes up about three days walk, leaving Mount Sinai, and now we're in Jerusalem. And the scene changes altogether in verse 22. But you, you followers of Jesus Christ, have come to Mount Zion. And you see, I think the argument is this. If you are tempted to leave Christ and go back to that old Hebrew religion, look at what you're going back to. You're just going back to Mount Sinai. You're going back to the stay away God and not to the come here, welcome God. Why go back to that? But you have come. Let's just spend a little, a few minutes looking at our new home. But you have come to Mount Zion. Look at the tense, look at the verb tense here in verse 22. It says, you have come to Mount Zion. That's Jerusalem. It doesn't say that you are marching to Zion in the future. He's not talking about an eschatological event. He's something that has happened already with present consequences. You have come. You are there now. We often think, well, heaven is my future home. And it is. But never neglect the past tense of our salvation. It's a place to which we have already come. We're so focused on doing more and getting better and being better and praying more and reading our Bible more and doing more for Jesus that we forget that the great event that has already happened has already taken place in the past. You have already come to Mount Zion. We need to focus on the past tenseness of our salvation. You have already come. It's a place where we already are. Yes, there is a future element in this, no doubt. But don't, don't neglect where we already have. Let's just run through this city in verses 22 through 24. Let's just take a look at the description of the city where we already live as God's people. And the whole argument is, look at where you are. Look at this beautiful city where you live. Why leave it? Why abandon Christ? Where are you going to go? You're going to go back to that mountain of burning flame. First he calls it Zion. Zion is a suburb of Jerusalem. It's in the southeast corner of Jerusalem. It's a small neighborhood, but that is the abode of God, the place where God lived. Therefore, it was beautiful. Next, he says it is a city of the living God. We're no longer living in tents, 
but we're in the city of the living God. The city back then is a place of safety. Cities had walls around them. If you're safe, you're not living out uh, in the farm country of Illinois because the Arameans and the Midianites can come and attack you. The safe places were Chicago back then. Now things are completely uh, different, aren't they? But the city back then was a place of walled safety. It's the city of the living God. Now, that's the place. Coming to a city, you want to get to know the inhabitants. And so the next few lines talk about who lives in that city. Who are they? Note the procession. First, angels. Angels are there in great number. And two innumerable angels in festal gathering. They're there to meet us. Again, don't think about heavenly gates, St. Peter waiting there. This is now. This is where we are now. We are now in Zion. We are now in the city of God. We now have this relationship even with the angels. Multitudes of angels were at Mount Sinai, but never to welcome, only to uh, keep us away. But even now we have some fellowship with the angels. Angels are created by God. We are created by God. Angels are God's servants. We are God's servants. They worship God. We worship God. Some people take this too much and all they do is talk to angels and they never talk to Jesus. And the Bible never tells us to talk to angels or to pray to angels. And yet angels are there all around us and surrounding us. One day we will mingle with them even in a way that we don't know. And next it says we have come to a judge. Uh, verse 23. Uh, the judge, God, the judge of all. Now, who would possibly want this? If someone came to you today and said, we're going to go see the judge, you're going to think, what did I do? But for us, it is a wonderful thing because this is the God who is going to exonerate you, to remind you of the cross of Calvary, to remind you that you're forgiven of all your sins. He's the one who absolves us. He is the one who answers the question, are you fit to enter the city? Then we see in verse 23 as well that we come to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. The spirits of righteous men. This kind of sounds Halloween-y, kind of spooky. It's like we're going to meet spirits of dead people? Well, uh, one commentator says, These are the disembodied spirits of the departed holy men who have finished their course and who have obtained their reward. Those are those who have gone on before us. And we are part of that great lineage, that great company. There's Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And there's John Knox. And there's Martin Luther. And there's um, Charles Spurgeon. And there's your faithful grandmother who prayed for you uh, over all the years. And we're part of that great company. Next it talks about the mediator. Verse 24, to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant. You see, it's not that God has stopped burning on Mount Sinai, but now a way is open. Now that fence that blocked us off to Mount Sinai has finally come down, and now we can go up to Mount Sinai and see the God of love and covenant face to face because of our mediator, Jesus Christ. And it says, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You know Abel, right? Abel was killed by his brother Cain. Abel's blood cried for vengeance. Jesus' blood cries for forgiveness and mercy. So that's our city. 
We skipped a little phrase in here. Let's go up and spend a couple of moments on that. In verse 22, it says, And we have come to the assembly, that is the church, of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. That term firstborn is a very important Old Testament concept. You know, for us, the firstborn, we probably have some firstborn kids here. What do the firstborn kids get that the others don't get? They probably just get more spankings than the others because by the time, like, you get to the thirdborn, like me, the parents are worn out. That's about the only thing that the firstborn gets. But back then, firstborn was like the young father. He was the inheritor. He was the privileged one. He was the dedicated one. Back in the days of the Old Testament, when you would have a child, you would bring the firstborn to the temple and you would offer him to the priest. In fact, you bring the firstborn of everything. Your firstborn donkey, your firstborn sheep, your firstborn cow. You would bring it all to the temple and they would sacrifice it and give it to the priest. Well, it's not nice to sacrifice babies, but you still have to bring it. And then you can offer money to redeem that child back uh, to bring that child back into your home. But it's offered, it's dedicated. And what a great picture of who we are. We, the firstborns, in fact, this uh, noun here, it seems like it's a singular noun in English to the firstborn, but in the original language, Greek, it's firstborns. It doesn't sound very good in English, but it's plural, it's firstborns. And so we are a church of firstborns. Here we are. I don't care what, where you fit in your own birth order. We are all firstborn children of God. That is the dedicated ones to God. The ones that God says, you are mine. You are my special children. This means a lot in Africa. In Africa, even today, the idea of being firstborn means a lot. The father passes away and the oldest son uh, makes all the decisions. And he takes the place of his father and he doles out the inheritance and he decides who's going to marry whom, and all these types of things. It means a lot. This means a lot in the African context. But here we are. You thought you were a bunch of nobodies. We thought we were a bunch of nobodies until we read God's Word, and we are a bunch of firstborn children of God, the dedicated special ones to Him, the inheritors of the possessions of God. We are the firstborn. And then it says that we are enrolled in heaven. Again, a special word. We are the inscribed ones. We are the ones who have been uh, written in. Our names are written in God's eternal book, and we are safe. That's who we are. So, friends, that's our home. That's where we live. How can we leave this mansion for the shack? How can we leave Jesus? Friends, maybe you are being tempted to leave Christ. Maybe temptations are assailing you. And they are strong. Maybe your body just isn't working the way it used to work. And you're thinking, why isn't God coming through? What about my wayward children? I've been praying for years, even decades for them, and God is not answering my prayers. God, are you there? Is there a God? Am I following Jesus in vain? Don't fall away from Christ. If you leave Mount Zion and the angels and God and the sprinkled blood of the covenant, where will you go? You're just going back to Mount Zion. That's our new home. Well, finally, point four is how to live in our new home. And that's the application of what we're talking about here. The application. First we see in verse 25, the application is, See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. God is speaking to you. 
Keep your ears open. Do not shut your ears to what he is telling you. When Jesus says, come to me, all you who labor and are tired and are heavy laden, don't close your ears to him. Come. You see, God spoke loudly on Mount Sinai. And if he spoke loudly then and uh, refusing him then, how much more are we in trouble if we refused him who speaks today in the new covenant? The next application is down in verse 28. Therefore, let us be grateful. No, God is not giving you everything you think you need, but he is giving you everything that he knows that you need. Therefore, let us be grateful. Thankfulness is a key mark of the Christian walk. Next, rest safe in a shaking world. We are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Again, our health shakes us up. Our bodies shake us up. Who knows what's going on in the political world? Who knows where a pandemic is going in 2021? We all assume that, hey, 2021 is going to be different than 2020. Do we know that? Or will our world be shaken even deeper? If the kingdoms of this world shake, let them tremble. We hold on to something that can never be shaken. And if your hope is in a vaccine to be manufactured in the next couple of weeks, or if your hope is in a perfect political situation, or if your hope is that your oncologist is going to say, hey, you've got a clean bill of health, then you are hoping in the wrong thing. Our grip is firmly latched on to the kingdom that cannot be shaken. That's why we sing these great songs with a smile on our face. Finally, the final application is that we must worship God in the way he wants. Look at the end of verse 28. Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. We must worship with God with fear. With fear? What do you mean with fear? I thought that was Old Testament Mount Sinai stuff, and now we're into the nice chummy God. No, God is not a nice chummy God. He is still the God of Mount Sinai. The fire is not burned out, but now we can approach him because of Jesus Christ. Why? Because the fire of Mount Sinai has fallen on Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. When Jesus was dying on the cross of Calvary, all the threats of Sinai that were against you and me fell on him. So Jesus could say, come to me. Are you tired? Come to me. Is your life shaking? Come to me. Are you trembling? Come to me. So let's conclude. I'm still a little bit surprised that 30 or 35 years after the resurrection, the empty tomb, and Pentecost, that people would be abandoning their faith. But they were, and they needed to hear these words. What about you? Are you about ready to abandon your faith as well? There's a number of ways to fall away from faith if you are really not one of Christ's. Maybe your connection with Jesus is just superficial. You're tasting him and you're saying, no, he's not for me. First, there's the radical reversal. This is the person who is, it's a splashy, all-at-once abandonment of the Christian faith. I used to preach on the streets, and I used to lead the youth group, and now I head up the atheistic society. And it's just a forget it, it's over, no way, it's done. Secondly, there's kind of the slow slide, the slow drift. Chapter 2 calls it drifting away. 
our prayers become cold. Other activities crowd out church involvement. And after a few months or a couple of years, the only thing that remains is some general respect for religion. But really, you're gone. Be careful of the slow slide. Maybe the most dangerous is the harmless linger. Some people abandon their profession of faith. This is the person who continues in the church forever because it looks respectable. It looks good. It keeps your wife or your husband happy. It sets a good example for the children and the grandchildren. But you no longer believe anything. No love for Christ. No evidence at all of any new life. Friends, let's hold on. Let's grip firmly onto Jesus Christ. Because he is the one who will never allow his true sheep to fall. Therefore, let us hold on to him strongly. Have you ever heard the story of the pilot in 1987? Henry Dempsey. He was flying on a flight from Maine to Boston. And he detected that one of the passenger doors on this very small plane was open. I think it was just he and his co-pilot that were flying. He went back to secure the door, and as he was doing it, he was sucked out of the door himself. Well, his co-pilot grabbed the wheel, obviously, and uh, attempted to make an emergency landing in Maine just 10 minutes or a few minutes after their flight. And the co-pilot called for a search and rescue over the Atlantic Ocean because uh, looking for a dead body that had gotten sucked out of a plane and they landed just about 10 minutes later, and there was Henry Dempsey still alive and still hanging on to a ladder on the outside of the plane. Nobody knew how this guy survived. They hadn't gotten too far, so breathing wasn't a problem, but that old pilot just held on for 10 minutes. They had to pry his fingers off because he was holding on so quickly, but he survived and live to tell about it. Guys, there's lots that's trying to rip our fingers away from Jesus. Dear friends, hold on. Jesus is holding on to you stronger than you're holding on to him. You just hold on to him because he is superior. He is better than anything in the Old Testament that people were falling back to. But even today, he's better than anything that is attracting you to love him. Anything that you want to put your ultimate satisfaction and happiness into him. But hold on, dear friends, because you are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And if that doesn't make a smile going into this next week, I don't know what does. So let's thank the Lord as we close and say, Lord, thank you that you are holding on to me. Help us to hold on to you. Let's pray. We thank you. Great shepherd of the sheep, that those who are truly your sheep shall never perish. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Thank you that your grip on us, dear Son of God and dear Father, is stronger than ours on you. So therefore, Lord, help us to hold on. Lord, temptations assail us, doubts assail us. The enemy of our souls, our bodies, our flesh, the world, our culture around us. Lord, uh, tempts us to let go of our grip on you. Hold on. I do pray for my dear brothers and sisters in Africa, Lord. Poverty has assailed them. Um, many problems. Ill health has assailed them. 
Thank you, Lord, that your church in Africa is exploding. And thank you for the great privilege of being one small part of that. Lord, I pray for my dear brothers and sisters here at Grace Bible Fellowship. Thank you, Lord, for their 30-plus years of faithfulness, Lord, in this community. We pray for their blessing, for their prosperity, Lord, for their spiritual blessing, that they would be great salt and light, Lord, where they are. We commit them to you, the elders, the deacons, the Sunday school teachers, the servants, Lord, in this congregation. We give you thanks for our time. And we thank you, Lord, that you are holding on to us. And we thank you, Lord, that we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Give us great hope this week as we enter into another week of work and serving you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.